It's 1208. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So, Eric, you know the, the story that I got the most feedback on for, from yesterday's show? The Milwaukee flag? Without a uh-huh. doubt. Do Without it. a doubt. It was the Milwaukee flag. If you haven't followed this, back in the, the, the city of Milwaukee flag. Now, who cares about the flag one way or the other? But the flag that they have had has been in place since 1954 and 1955. Mm-hmm. It is clearly outdated. It has County Stadium on it. It has... Uh, a, a logo of the Milwaukee Braves that some people find to be offensive. But regardless of that, the Braves haven't been here since 1965. All right. So they decide we're going to take a look at, at a new flag. So in 2015, 2016, what happens is they, they have this interesting design contest, and you have this committee, and they solicit designs for the new flag um, over a thousand people, I think, submit designs, Tons, yeah. and then they have a committee that narrows it down to a handful of flags, and they have a big unveiling, and then people end up voting, and they end up choosing the, the sunrise flag. Well, the Common Council has never has never fully gotten into it, and they've never fully endorsed that as Milwaukee's flag. But you'll see this flag all over. I mean, it, it's downtown. It's at Miller Park. It's at Summerfest, I believe. Well, now you have something called the Milwaukee Arts Committee which has decided, despite the fact that you had this entire process, despite the fact that you had thousands and thousands of people vote, despite the fact that you've had this vetting, some people are concerned that the flag might not be inclusive enough, whatever the heck that means, and they want to scrap the process and start all over again, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, the plan is, if the Common Council goes along with this, the plan is to hire well, somebody or some consultants, God help us, one or more consultants. And then what the consultants would do is they would go out and they would meet with various people in the community. I don't know if the plan is to talk to every one of the 600 plus thousand people who live in the city of Milwaukee, but, but they would, they would then go out, they would talk to everybody, and then they would come up with perhaps other designs or they might elect to stay with the um, original flag design that we have now, so that everything is on the table. The cost, and and again, everybody kind of listens to this, and it's like, okay, well, it's the city of Milwaukee. It just shows how dysfunctional and screwed up the city is that you can't make a decision. Now you're going to get more consultants in. But then, of course, what gets everybody's comment is the estimates that to hire these consultants, it's going to be somewhere in the six figures. Mm -hmm. Six figures. A hundred plus thousand dollars to hire these consultants, wouldn't you love to see, you know, who's giving campaign donations? But they're, pay, they're considering paying $100,000 to bring in consultants to review this process over this flag. Now, it's the city of Milwaukee, every time it rains hard, it dumps poop into Lake Michigan. All right? We don't have the money to fix that. You've got kids that are getting sick because you've got lead in the pipe. So every time they turn on the tap... The water that goes into the sink, well, okay, that that could be potentially poisoning some people. We don't have enough money to fix that. We're trying to do it incrementally. And don't even get me started on the condition of the roads and anything else. But the, the operative thing that I've been hearing from people, Eric, is $100,000 plus dollars mm-hmm. for the flag that they've already done this extensive process on. And no matter what you do, no matter how long this goes, no, how, no matter how much money is spent, no one will ever all like the flag. You're always going to have half the percentage of the population dislike whatever you decide on. Well, so. well, well exactly. I mean, I, the, the, 
I mean, I look at the flag candidly. I mean, I think people could have designed a better flag. Oh, okay, but you you could ask anybody that question. I mean, this is Milwaukee where you've got that big, ugly orange sunburst at the end of Wisconsin Avenue. We can't do anything about that because it's art. But it's not so much the flag, but it's the overarching Mm -hmm. issue of spending a hundred grand or more on a consultant to come up with a different version of the flag. And you know what I have to mention? I, I said this yesterday to you, Jeff. There was something, and it sounds corny to say this, but there was something inspiring about what this group of young Milwaukeeans wanted to do, that they came with this process. They set up standards and color barrier, you know, just different ideas right. that came with how you design this flag. They they had applications from all across the country, even outside of the country, to be able to right. put the stamp on this flag. You had so many people involved, so many wanted to be a part of it, and to just completely throw that aside and say it wasn't good enough—it's just boy. Right. Yeah. And we're go- and again, and we're going to spend yeah, right, right. over. A- I'm sorry, I can't get past that point. I mean, again, I, I, I right. I mean, I understand what you're saying about the the whole like like let's get together and let's let's have this community decision make based thing. But now again, you have some of these politically correct people on this Milwaukee Arts Board. Well, we didn't talk enough to this group or that group, or or maybe this group didn't have enough input. And I mean, seriously. It's a flag. And again, if you could do it for free, it would be one thing, but you can't do it for free. They're going to dump six figures into taking – first, they're going to take bids as to which consultants want to come in and and do it. Then you're going to drag this process out another couple years. I mean, my first advice would be, I mean, let's stop – let's figure out how to separate the sewers so you don't dump poop into the lake every time you get it raining. All right, wouldn't that be a better use? If you've got $100,000, I don't know how many sewers, you know, you, where you can disconnect. The, I don't know how many, for a hundred grand. I don't know how many sanitary sewers can be separated from the storm sewers. But my guess is, all right, that would be a better use of $100,000, but not in the city of Milwaukee. In any event, I've been getting a lot of feedback on that. That's the story. So everybody's going, Really? Is the city of Milwaukee really doing that? I said, yes, this is Tom Barrett's Milwaukee. That's This is what is going on. All right. I've gotten that out of my system. If you go to Facebook.com slash 620WTMJ, we're live streaming the first couple segments of the program. You can check that out. You can also download our podcast. I know a number of people do that. It's a way of listening to the program as well. Go to WTMJ.com, click on the mobile app page, download the podcast. Let's get started. Uh, former Governor Tommy Thompson, and I consider Tommy Thompson to be a friend. We um, were on the same ticket back in 1994 when he was running for re-election, his third term. Um, I, I think Governor Thompson gets credit. I think he was an innovator when it comes to welfare reform. And I, I think, you know, again, he probably got out of Wisconsin when the getting was was good, you know, took a job in the Bush administration Decided to come back and run against Tammy Baldwin six years ago. That was kind of an ill-fated effort. I think maybe time had moved on. But it's not to say that when Governor Thompson, and I always refer to him as Governor Thompson, when he speaks, I, I think, you know, people, people should listen. Very, very successful as a governor. He was at the Milwaukee Press Club yesterday and he was talking about a number of things. But one of the things that he suggested had to do with the state of the roads. He said that in his opinion, He thinks it's time for the new governor, Governor-elect Evers, and the state GOP legislative leaders to decide once and for all 
it is time to raise the gasoline tax in Wisconsin. The gasoline tax in Wisconsin is a little bit less than 33 cents a gallon. It has been frozen there for a number of years. On top of that, Governor Thompson says he believes it is time to bring back gas tax indexing. See, raising taxes is always an unpopular and a difficult thing to do for politicians as a general rule. And so for years and years and years, politicians, in an effort to try to avoid taking that hard vote, simply said, hey, we're going to index the gas tax. What that means is every year we're going to adjust the gasoline tax for inflation. So if uh, cost of living goes up 1.5%, automatically we're going to raise the gas tax 1.5%. So the tax would keep getting higher and higher and higher, but nobody would ever have to actually vote to do it. The politicians could say, oh, it's automatic. We haven't voted to support that. Well, so Governor Thompson says, I think the gas tax needs to be raised, and I think we should go back to indexing automatic gas tax increases. Let's start with that point. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should the gas tax be raised, and should it raises moving forward, should it just be automatic? Nobody has to vote on it. It's just if inflation goes up, boom, we're automatically going to increase the gas tax. Governor Thompson says politically now is the time to do it because gas prices are low, maybe artificially low, and it's easier to raise the gas tax when, okay, it's $2.39 a gallon as opposed to $3.39 a gallon or 4 bucks a gallon. Where are you on gas tax increasing, and what do you think about automatic increases in the gas tax. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It's 1218. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. And once again, we also live stream Facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ. We discuss increasing the gas tax and then automatically doing it from there on in just a minute. Stick around. 1218, Jeff Wagner. 1221, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right. Here's the here's the text of the day so far. Why do you keep calling him Governor Thompson? Evers won. It's like, well, yes, I I call him Governor Thompson because um, in, in the United States, the formal rules are that senators, governors, presidents and officers in the armed forces retain their courtesy titles after leaving office. That's kind of the way it does. So if you talk to run into Bill Clinton, you would call him President Clinton. That's just kind of the way it works. All right. I digress. 414-799-1620. Former Governor Thompson talking to the Milwaukee Press Club yesterday says, look, here's what we need to do. We need to raise the gasoline tax and we should go back to gas tax increasing, meaning automatic increases in the gas tax every year tagged to the rate of inflation so politicians don't have to vote on it one way or the other. It just will automatically increase. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Steve in Lake Geneva. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you doing? I am well, thank you. What do you think? I, <laughs> well, I don't like any taxes, to be honest with you, but I think automatic taxes are a really bad idea. I mean, that's the whole purpose of our government and our former government is to right. debate and argue. And if you, make it, if you make it automatic, then, you know, what's the point? I yeah, mean, see, I, I agree with you completely, Steve. I mean, it's... I think reasonable people can agree, can disagree about whether or not we should 
bump the gas tax in Wisconsin that has been frozen for so long so you don't have to pay for borrowing and things like that. But automatic gas tax increases lets politicians off the hook. It lets them increase spending on roads. It allows them to then not necessarily watch where the money is going. Indexing, I think, is an absolutely awful and irresponsible idea because you need to hold people accountable. Otherwise, the politicians and the DOT just going to throw money to the road builders, and you're not going to have the accountability that you need. Exactly. Right. Thanks for calling again. And I, again, I, I think, I think, again, reasonable people. I am not in favor of gas tax increase at this point because I think there is so awfully much waste that still continues to exist when you look at road building projects and things like that. And I don't believe you increase gas taxes or any tax until you, you've already cut out the, you figured out how to eliminate that waste. And if you look at some of these projects and some of these things these road builders do and some of the ways the taxpayers are ripped off in the extreme, I think that's where you start. But again, maybe we will reach a point, and maybe reasonable people can argue we're at the point now where after a number of years of being frozen, you need a modest increase in the gas tax. But indexing it so you allow politicians off the hook to just automatically have more and more money, that's what I think is irresponsible. Let's talk to Don in Eagle. Don, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Don. What do you think? I'm in support for a gas tax uh, because... Our roads have the. I think some of the updates that have been done have been have, are, are positive, but I would like to make sure that the, if there's a gas tax, it goes for the roads and not, no other pork barrel projects. Right. And I like to see it actually indexed off the barrel of oil. If it's like if it's like eighty bucks a barrel, it's a quarter a gallon. If it's eighty above eighty dollars a quarter, it goes down appropriately. That way, you have money in for that. But I, I really like the way some of these roads are being built. You have the little extra anemones that are on it, and I think mm-hmm. it's worth it in the long run. Well, I guess the question is: I, I, Look, I, I'm not against building roads because I, I think you have to do that. You know, if you're going to transport, if you're going to have commerce fly on there, uh, on use that. You, you, that's clearly something that that's appropriate. I guess I'm my problem and my concern is whether or not before we raise the gas tax, are we able, should we be able to maintain the roads and have a reasonable basis of growth based on the revenue that we have coming in? But the first question has to be, okay, where are these expenditures? How are we spending that money? And remember that story about a month or so ago where you had the, the one project where they, they had, they got caught double billing the state for stuff and, and nobody even said anything. It's like, ah, we're, we're not going to fool around with this. And so, so it's, it's a six figure shell out that the taxpayers have to have. Who cares about that? Well, people should care about that. I mean, if you're, if you are doing a project and you hire a roofing company, for example, to put on the roof and you're paying for different things and you look and they've billed you $20,000 for the same thing twice, you're not just going to pay the $20,000. But the state of Wisconsin Department of Transportation, that is how they operate. So that's why I am extremely reluctant to say go ahead with the gas tax. But but again, even if we get to that point, the idea of allowing automatic increases in the gas tax is to me absolutely crazy because that then takes everybody off the hook. You know you're going to have more coming in. 
So, okay, we've got the road builders. They want more money. Fine. The DOT can just shell out more money. We don't have to be accountable to where that money is going because we know we're going to have a guaranteed revenue stream that is going to increase and increase and increase. And the politicians are never going to have to take a vote on it. I mean, if you do, if you bring back indexing on the gas tax, it is, you should call it the Politician Unaccountability Act. Dusty in Hales Corners on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Jeff, good afternoon. How's it going? I'm well, thank you. Okay, what do you think about all this? I think you nailed it. Just what you said. There's no accountability. There's all these budget shortfalls. Why raise our taxes even higher? They got to find out where the money's going. And you know what? I drive trucks for a living. I'm on the road all day long. To my calculations, I see a lot more drivers out here. So there should be more revenue for the state. And what have you? Where's all this money going? That's what I want to know. Well, and see, th- thanks for calling, Dusty. And that is, see, that is the underlying question. Where is all the money going? Now, we, we know some of the things that it's not going to, but w- how much money is being spent on these projects? And are there ways that we could go about getting these projects done for a lot less money? All right, here's some of our texts. I'm very opposed to a tax increase. What I would like to see once is the DOT come up with some cost savings. I think they are a bloated and incompetent department at best. Another text. Thompson is insane. No to raising the gas tax or an automatic increase. Um, and then some more costal things along that line. Bottom line of all this is, look, I, I think you have to be open to having a discussion on this. And I understand for politicians, if you want to raise your taxes, this is a good time to do it with the gas tax because right now the cost of gasoline is low. But, but, but it's not going to stay low forever. And this idea of, well, let's do it now because people aren't going to object to an extra couple cents if it's, well, if it's when gas is two fifty a gallon Okay, that that's fine, but think about this what this is going to do when a year from now gas is 350 or 375 or 4 bucks a gallon. Bottom line is, with all due respect to former Governor Thompson, I think he's all wet on this one. 1229 Jeff Wagner WTMJ. It's 12:38 Jeff Wagner WTMJ. The holidays are right around the corner, and WTMJ is back with our annual holiday radio show. WTMJ presents The Night Before Christmas starring Gene Miller, Jane Matinair, yours truly. And a sleigh full of Wisconsin celebrities from Turner Hall in downtown Milwaukee on Monday, November 26th at 6.30. The live radio play will be recorded in front of a studio audience, and you can be a part of it. Buy tickets now. There are just a handful of tickets left. Go to WTMJ.com or text the word Christmas to 414-799-1620. Now, since the election a week ago Tuesday, and again, I, I know I said this yesterday, it just... Doesn't it seem, Eric Bilstadt, like that election, like like a week ago Tuesday? Right. I mean, (laughs) exactly. But since the election a week ago Tuesday, Governor Walker has not made public appearances. I mean, I think he he attended an event with with his wife, uh, Tanette, but he hasn't made public statements. He hasn't talked to the media. And we're getting at least preliminary reports that that might change this afternoon. John Mercure says that we should have a news conference with the governor at 3 o'clock this afternoon. So we're going to look at, to lock that in. But uh, Mercure says 3 p.m. today, his office will hold a news conference with Governor Walker in Wisconsin, in Madison, in his office. And to the extent we can bring it to you, I think the plan would be to do that. We are working on this now. All right. Something that is going to happen before that, about in about an hour and 20 minutes or so, the judge... In the CNN case, um, CNN versus the president is scheduled to issue a preliminary ruling. 
I, I think you're perhaps familiar with this so far. Jim Jim Acosta is he is a reporter for CNN. He's the White House correspondent. He has a complete and total disdain for President Trump, and the feeling is mutual. But let's be honest. Um, Acosta has carved out sort of a niche and increased his profile by being very, very aggressive towards President Trump. So this has been going on for quite a while. A week ago yesterday, at a press conference the president was having after the, the midterm election, he called, the president calls on Jim Acosta first. Now, you know, I, I think the president was spoiling for a fight because he doesn't have to call on Acosta. He calls on Acosta. Acosta asks a question. The president gives an answer. Acosta doesn't like it. And then we're off to the races. At one point in time, the president says that he's a ter- that he being Acosta is a terrible person and CNN should be embarrassed to hire him. It, and, and they go back and forth. At that point in time, right, the president decides he wants to move on to other questioners. And Jim Acosta continues to ask questions and won't immediately surrender the microphone. All right. You everybody saw the press conference. It was, you know, great theater. What happens in the aftermath of that is the White House decides they are going to pull Acosta's press pass. They he has what's called a hard pass, which is allow it allows him access to any areas of the White House that the press are allowed, but the general public isn't. All right, so they pull his pass, so he's no longer admitted. Now, CNN has about 50 of these hard passes. So by targeting Jim Acosta, the White House isn't denying coverage to to, to CNN. CNN's got, has got all sorts of reporters. They can send anybody they want. They're also not saying that Acosta can't cover the White House. But they're saying that Acosta can't come into the press areas. They're not allowing him on the grounds. But Acosta can do whatever he wants. He can get press reports. He can talk to whoever he wants. He just can't get access to the White House. So after this happens, CNN files a suit. And it's relatively unprecedented. I'm not sure that there has been a lawsuit filed against the president since since the you know since the Watergate era, or maybe even you might have to go back to the Pentagon Papers thing to to find that, and I think that was sixty eight or sixty nine when when that or maybe seventy one whenever that that happened. So yesterday, what happened is you had an extensive hearing. The case has been assigned to a federal judge in Washington, who interestingly enough was appointed by President Trump. And the arguments were heard. Apparently, it was a two-hour hearing, and the judge was very, very engaged, asking both people, both sides, the attorneys for both sides, questions about, okay, what what does this mean? Does the First Amendment, freedom of the press, does that give essentially a news organization the absolute right to have access to the White House? Does it give them an absolute right to decide who it is that's going to be able to come in and cover the White House? Does the president have to issue press passes in in the first place? I mean, see, see keep in mind, what, what happened is, I think for whatever anybody wants to say about Donald Trump, he he enjoys baiting and engaging with the press. If you look back at the last couple presidents, Barack Obama, Barack Obama didn't have press conferences in any, in any large number. Barack Obama dealt with the press in a very controlled fashion. Bush, President Bush, he didn't want to deal with the press at all. Trump revels in it. So I, I think in one respect, you have unprecedented access that the press has. But the question is, does a news outlet like CNN have an absolute right to say, all right, we can send anybody we want in there? 
The flip side is, can the president control access to the media? And does the president have a chance if the president decides, for example, that here you have a reporter that's been rude, you have a reporter that's created disturbances, you have a reporter that doesn't want to play by the rules of everybody else, does the White House have the right to pull that pass from him? Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, you can come up with all sorts of factual scenarios that might change the answer. Could a president, for example, say, I'm not going to allow the press to come into the White House at all? I'm not going to have any press access. I'm not going to have any press conferences. I'm not going to answer questions. I'm not going to allow the press to to cover me at all, or I'm not going to give them access. Could could a president do that? Well, whether he could or not, that's not what's going on here. This is one particular reporter who's being denied access. So let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, should the president be able to, all right, say to, in this case, it's a hostile reporter, but it's also a reporter who was being a jerk himself. And, and you could say, well, Trump's a jerk as well. I, that, that's not the point right now. You have a reporter who was being a jerk, who was trying to monopolize the conversation, who wasn't allowing the president to move on when the president chose to call someone else. Should the president be able to pull the press pass for that reporter? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1246, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 1249, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Well, within an hour or so, the federal judge who heard these hearings on the Acosta, the CNN versus the president lawsuit, is going to issue a preliminary ruling. Whatever he rules, it's not going to end there. This is going to go up to the Court of Appeals. It might end up at the Supreme Court. How I look at this, as I often say, just because you have a right to do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. If I were President Trump, would I have pulled Jim Acosta's press pass? My answer is no. What I would have done is I would have frozen him out. I simply wouldn't have called on him. All right? So I wouldn't have handled this the way the Trump administration did. Having said that, though, even though might not have been the right thing, because what President Trump did is he's essentially, to the extent that Jim Acosta was a hero of the resistance left, he, he's he's made him even more of a hero. He's raised his profile by doing this. All right. So even though I think maybe politically it wasn't the greatest strategy, do I think the White House has the right to deny a reporter a press pass? My answer is yes. I don't think there's any absolute right that says, hey, CNN has to have 50 press passes and that they have to be able to send anybody in. I mean, typically, when you apply for a press pass, what happens is they look, they decide how many of the organization is going to have, and they look through it. I don't think CNN has an absolute right to say to be able to dictate the reporters that can get inside the White House. I don't think they have an absolute right to do it. Um, they can decide how they want to cover the White House, and they can certainly have Jim Acosta continue to do it. But I don't think he has an absolute right under the First Amendment to get a press pass, even though if I were the Trump administration, I wouldn't have pulled it. Lee in Milwaukee. Lee, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, Jeff. Uh, thanks for having me. Yes, on. sir. Uh, being assigned to the White House press corps, is it, it's the age of entitlement that you can argue freedom of the press. Being assigned to that press corps was always a privilege and actually a big honor that was bestowed upon mm-hmm. the press. And 
if you dishonor that, if you uh, if you become a problem or you mm-hmm. want to confront the president, it, the president's been confronted by the press as long as there's been you know these press conferences, but it was by objective news people. Right. Uh, it's a privilege, and if you, I have no problem with the president taking away that privilege if you dishonor. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, thanks to call. I mean, to me, it would be thanks to call. To me, it would be the same as. Let's say you've got somebody that's got a pass to cover the White House that allows them access to certain areas, and they decide that, all right, they're going to go into other areas or whatever looking for a story. Does the First Amendment give them an absolute right to do that? And I think the answer would, would be would be no. I think the White House has the right to, for example, set the conditions upon which a press pass is issued. In this particular case, what they are saying is that, hey, the guy was disruptive he refused to stop talking when the president said he was going to move on. At that point in time, it's that behavior that cost him the press pass. And again, I you can argue about the merits. Should the White House have done this? Have they made him a hero? Have they increased his cachet? But but that's not the issue. The White House did do it. The question is legally, can they do it? And my answer is, yeah, I think they I think they probably can. I don't think the First Amendment gives CNN an absolute right to have, you know, this particular reporter access. Now, if he had canceled all of CNN's press passes, that's perhaps a different story. But that's not what happened. Dave and Exonia. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. I believe that a press pass is just that. It's issued by the president or his staff and entitles them basically the right to cover the news. But it's not a guaranteed entitlement, and that's what the society is going to, is entitlement. And you have a right to report the news to whatever faction, like you said earlier, but entitlement shouldn't stand. Yeah, and, and there's, I mean, it's not like CNN is going to be prevented from covering the news. CNN can have, you know, they, they can they can designate a reporter to show up at the press conferences and ask questions and things like that. And Acosta is still allowed to cover the White House. He can do stand-ups on the, you know, wherever. You know, he, he can do whatever interviews he wants. He just doesn't have the right to go into this area. And, and I think the White House has to have the ability to do it. And if they do it in an unfair fashion, well, the media... Media covers it, and then they make them look bad. All right, that that's the way it's supposed to work. No, thanks for call. Now, I don't know how the judge is going to rule. Interestingly enough, like I say, it's it's a relatively new federal judge who heard this case, who was appointed by President Trump. I read a number of the questions that were asked to both sides, and he asked some of these tough questions, including sort of the theoretical questions that I find fascinating about what if this, what if that. What if the president tried to do this? What if he did that? And those are all interesting questions. But at its heart of it, this is does one reporter who behaves in a rude fashion in the view of the White House. I mean, does the White House have the right to pull that one reporter's press pass? And and my I, I think the answer should be yes. Is that a blow to freedom of the press? No, I, I don't think it, it is. The White House can still get covered. Like I say, you change the facts a little. Maybe it's a different result. I don't know how this judge is going to rule, but whatever ruling we get at 2 o'clock our time today, it's not going to be the end of it. Stay tuned. 1256, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 109, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right. 
Now, this comes from the perspective of somebody who has now entered this sort of age group that is the subject of of parody and satire. I am a middle-aged, conservative-leaning white guy. And if you look at, like, a, a lot of the things in popular culture, you know, what what is the one group of people that you can mock relentlessly in TV shows, in movies, whatever? And it would be middle-aged, conservative-leaning white guys. You know, we, my, my, we end up being the villains in TV shows. We end up being the villains in movies. It's just, it's kind of like, and, and there's, there's nowhere to go to complain about it. It's just kind of, well, that kind of comes with the territory that, you know, if you're going to be in this class, you're going to be mocked. You're going to be parodied, parodied, and that's okay. I get it. Wagner's rule of life, number one, is life is tough. Get a helmet. I bring this up, though, because there is something that Hasbro, the toy company, has done that has generated a huge amount of, well, response and angst. Gru, who's producing the show today and always, have you heard about the new Monopoly game that's out? You have not. All right. Well, you will want to be listening to this. Hasbro has come out with a new version of Monopoly. You know the game Monopoly that we, we have played it's been around, you know, forever. You know, don't pass go. Don't get two hundred dollars. You, you know, you you try to collect properties. You try to then win the game by getting the most money. All right, that's that's that is Monopoly. And by the way, I'm not making this up. Hasbro has just released a new game, and I understand you're going to hear this and you're going to think I'm making it up. I, I'm not. It's called Monopoly for Millennials. Monopoly for Millennials. Uh, the game's rules and cover art all play up the stereotypes that millennials are known for. The box for the game shows Mr. Monopoly taking a selfie, wearing headphones, and he's also wearing a participation medal while holding a coffee. The taglines read, forget real estate, you can't afford it anyways, and adulting is hard, you deserve a break from the rat race. Rather than win by collecting the most money, the game prompts players to collect experiences, including visiting a friend's couch, going to a vegan bistro, and hitting a week-long meditation retreat. Game pieces include a hashtag and a crying emoji. All right, now, some people are amused by the game. But as you might expect, a number of millennials are just incredibly upset. They're taking to social media to express their anxiety. Let's see. Here's one. Next, Monopoly for Baby Boomers, where you buy property for below face value. Only people of color go to jail. And when you pass go, you get to complain about millennials. Um, Let's see. Um, How dare anybody do something like this? It's the baby boomers who've caused the economic catastrophe that has rendered us financially impotent for a decade, etc., etc. For their point, Hasbro says this. We created Monopoly for Millennials to provide fans with a lighthearted game that allows millennials to take a break from real life and laugh at the relatable experiences and labels that can sometimes be placed on them. With many of us being millennials ourselves, this is Hasbro, we understand the seemingly endless struggles and silly generalizations that young millennials can face, and we can't even. Whether you are a lifestyle vlogger, an emoji lover, or you make your side hustle selling vegan candles, Monopoly for Millennials is for you. 
So it's a Monopoly game that plays to, I don't know, every one of the stereotypes, fair or unfair, about millennials. All right. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should people be offended by this? Or should you just kind of take it in, in good, take it in the sense that it is perhaps offered that, hey, this is kind of fun. It's an updating a monopoly. They're trying to have a fun. They're have, trying to have some fun. They're trying to play with stereotypes. Should people be offended by this? Or is the whole idea behind this? They're just trying to, I don't know, open up monopoly perhaps to a new generation of people. Another story I'm looking at says Hasbro's new Monopoly for Millennials game is an insulting experience. This is by someone named Hannah Sparks. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go directly to you know where. Millennials have long been maligned for their inability to adult from avoiding marriage to quitting their jobs to travel. But perhaps the most sent. The most central to the millennial M.O. is the issue of property investments, of which they infamously have none. So the cynical game makers at Hasbro divided, devised monopoly for millennials. Forget real estate. You can't afford it anyways. All right. Should millennials be offended by this or get in on the joke? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 115. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 117. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The Packers can pump some life into their playoff chances if they can pull off a win tonight in Seattle. Voice of the Packers, Wayne Larrabee, has the day after reaction. Be sure to tune in. He joins Gene Miller at 751 tomorrow on Wisconsin's Morning News. All right. Hasbro, which makes Monopoly, has just come out with a new game. It's called Monopoly for Millennials. And the, the board is the same, but instead of trying to buy Park Place and buy Boardwalk, what you do is, well, it, you win, I don't know, you, you win by participating in the game. The board features the traditional go-to-jail space. However, instead of collecting money, you win by collecting experiences as you travel around the board. These experiences include parents' basement, thrift shop, and farmer's market. And a number of millennials are upset because they say, oh, this is unfair. We're being stereotyped. AJ from Milwaukee sends me a text. This is hilarious. I was born in 1988, and I'm buying Monopoly for millennials thanks to hearing about this particular segment. I I actually, look, see, and again, this comes from the perspective of there are everybody at some point in time in their life, my guess is they will find themselves in some group which is subject to satire and parody. And there's two ways you can take that. You can always you can say, oh, these are unfair stereotypes and generalizations, and it's not fair to make fun of us for this. And I'm not I'm not talking about where you're the victim of racism or discrimination. I'm just talking about, you know, you're in this group where you're being parodied and made fun of for what they assume is going to be overall characteristics that are common to your particular group. And I understand the whole concept of let's get a lottie, latte and let's have a participation medal. I understand that that applies to millennials, and I understand that it's not fair to target an entire group like that. But at the same time, given the fact that these are, I mean, some of the things that fair or unfair are parodies of millennials, to get upset about this particular game seems to me to be, what would the phrase be, a waste of spirit. All right, here's a text. There's nothing to be offended about. It's kind of silly, which it is. 
That being said, a point should be made about how much control baby boomers have over all our lives. I'm 45 years old, and baby boomers controlled everything when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, when I was a young adult. And now as a middle-aged person, baby boomers are still in charge. Gen X and millennials seem to have been completely left behind, to which my response would be, you know, hang, hang in there. Hang in there. Your time will, in fact, come. Here's another text. What happened to the phrase, suck it up, buttercup? Well, that's kind of it as well. I will be curious if this game is a success, and I will also be curious as to whether or not, if it is a success, who it is ends up ends up purchasing this game. For example, I'm not going to be in the target. I'm a baby boomer. I'm not going to be buying it. But my guess is maybe some of those millennials with a sense of humor, they will be the ones that will be jumping on this bandwagon. All right. Once the wildfires are finally brought under control, who should pay? I'll tell you that story next. Stick around. It's 121. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 123. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. From Ron Kramer to Paul Kaufman to Bubba Franks, who are the best tight ends in Packers history? Hmm. Make your vote a tight end for our Green Bay 100. All-time 53-man roster. Get the ballot by texting the number 100 to 414-799-1620. I will will say this. From my political perspective, would I have preferred to have Republicans continue to keep control of the House of Representatives after the election results last Tuesday? And my answer would be yes, from a policy matter. Having said that, from the perspective of somebody who does what I do for a living and just a political junkie and observer – I will tell you this, that the next the next several months and maybe the next two years are going to be just incredibly interesting political theater. Let me explain what I mean by that. It's it's one thing when you are the party out of power to be the the the, the rock throwers, you know, and, and I'll give you an example. Republicans dealt with this for a while. OK, Obamacare was pushed through on pretty much. You know, on, on exclusively a party line vote. And for several years, you had Republicans that were running against the Affordable Care Act. All right. And that, that was all well and good. We've got to repeal it, et cetera, et cetera. Well, then the Republicans took power. And then what happens is, all right, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to replace it? How are we going to make this work? And all of a sudden, you've got all these different divisions and, and you can't come to any sort of agreement and your failure to get something done maybe, you know, leads to your loss of power. I, I've seen this over and, and over again. You have the party that's out of power, and it's easy to be out of power because then you can just criticize the things that are being done without having having to come up with real-world solutions that you can sell to the majority of your members. And a lot of times what ends up happening is, and this happens with Republicans and it happens with Democrats, is they end up eating their own. People are, are unified uh, in an effort to try to get to power. But then once they get to power, there are divisions within the group, and pretty soon people start splitting off, and you have chaos. It's like trying to herd cats. You are already seeing that happen with the incoming Democrats that are to take it over the House of Representatives because you, you've really got two types of Democrats. You have the more moderate Democrats, and, and actually – in a lot of the seats that Democrats picked up, a lot of the seats that they won from Republicans, it, it was what I would describe as moderate Democrats who won. 
it wasn't, as a general rule, these firebrand lefties, let's burn this all down. It was moderate Democrats, or at least much more moderate than some of the hashtag resistance people. All right. So they're the ones that actually picked up the seats that led to the changeover in Congress. At the same time, you also have kind of the new generation of, of Democrats that won a number of seats, in most cases not from you know exiting Republicans, but from Democrats who retired or in primary campaigns or whatever, who are the hard left, the hashtag resistance type of folks. And, and they've won. And now they've come to Washington with the idea that, hey, they don't want to work with Republicans. They're there to kind of turn stuff just up on it, it, its end. You know, we've been out of power for so long, and it, it's kind of like take the Bernie Sanders approach and then throw in a bunch of steroids. That's what you're seeing. Well, the, the problem is you've got the, the far-left Democrats that have swept in, and they feel they've got a mandate. And then you have the more moderate Democrats who won in closely, you know, close elections who are, by the way, going to have to run for re-election two years from now. And if they suddenly go too far to the left, they're going to lose those seats. And, and there is this tension. You saw it a couple days ago when as soon as a lot of the new representatives come in, what's one of the first things that some of them do? They stage they stage a takeover in Nancy Pelosi's office because they don't think that she and other members of the, the Democrats in Congress have moved fast enough on issues like climate change. Oh, we want 100% green energy in a couple years, stuff that... Well, I mean, if you look at the costs and things like that, probably isn't going to be practical. and It's not going to appeal to a majority of the American public. But again, it, it fits in with the far left mantra. Yesterday, um, it was interesting because a number of Democrats, particularly some of the newly elected women, they've been very, very clear that they're they're not committed at all to continuing to vote for Nancy Pelosi as speaker. And it's pretty much an open question right now as to whether she's going to continue as speaker or whether there's going to be a demand for somebody new. Bottom line of all this is I don't know how it's going to turn out, but you are already seeing these divisions among the incoming Democrats, just like you've seen this with Republicans before. So I think it's going to be just absolutely fascinating to see how this plays out, because you're going to have all this tension. You're going to have some of the hashtag resistance folks who are going to want to say, we're going to spend the next two years, we're going to be issuing subpoenas, we're going to be pushing for impeachment, etc. And you're going to have a lot of, I want to say, the more moderate Democrats saying, no, this isn't the way to go you know, if we do this, it's going to be an electoral disaster in 2020. We'll play into Donald Trump's hands. And you're going to have this natural tension that's going to exist. Matter of fact, like I say, it exists already. This is something that the Republicans saw over the last couple of years. And, for example, Paul Ryan had to deal with on a regular basis because you had some of the extremely conservative Republicans, like 30 or 40, who just they had their in this case, their conservative principles, and they didn't want to bend. They It was like, okay, we're not going to compromise. We're not going to do this or that or the other thing. Even though we like 90% of this legislation, it's not ideologically pure. There's 10% of the legislation that, okay, we don't like, so we're not going to vote for it. And the result was nothing ended up getting done. You couldn't get stuff through, and it ended up hurting the party in power. The Democrats are already going through the same thing, Who's going to be their leader? Can they keep them in line? Or will it be like herding cats? The jury's still out. But history, it seems to me, is already repeating itself. 
135. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, who's producing the show today always. You put this paper, piece of paper in front of me. I know I'm going to need this particular piece of paper for the entire three hours of the show. And I swear, two or three times during the show, I throw the piece of paper away. And, and then I, I end up fumbling around, where is the piece of paper? Huh? I don't know. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. The holidays right around the corner. WTMJ is back with its annual holiday radio show. WTMJ presents The Night Before Christmas, starring Gene, Gene Miller, Jane Matinair, yours truly, and a sleigh full of Wisconsin celebrities from Turner Hall in downtown Milwaukee on Monday, November 26th. That is a week from Monday. Doors open at 5.30. The show starts at 6.30. The live radio play will be recorded in front of a studio audience. That means you, and you can be part of it. Buy tickets now. There are only a handful left. Go to WTMJ.com or text the word Christmas to 414-799-1620. Okay, I'm not throwing that piece of paper away, at least not right now. Yesterday, I mentioned this on the air. Yesterday, I started off my day by getting my having my annual physical and the doctor said you know the bottom bottom line is what did he how did he describe it? he said well uh, aside from a, a few chinks here and there you're in a you know you're 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 in pretty good shape so i i, I but you know there, there's obviously things that i need to work on but as we were going through the things um it's like all right he said you know you need you need a shot for you need an ammonia shot, okay? And this this is it. This will be good for five years, okay? So he gives me an ammonia shot. He says, "Have you had your flu shot?" I said, "No, I haven't." He said, "You gotta have one." I said, "Yep." And so I got my flu shot in my left arm. I got the pneumonia shot in my right arm. I got a blood draw. I got my finger was pricked to take some blood from it. All those different things. But he asked me about whether or not I wanted the flu shot, and I just said, "Yeah," because I have gotten the flu shot. Well. Pretty much every year for the last 10 years. I mean, I, I think I, I a couple years I didn't because it just wasn't convenient. But then we went through a period here at WTMJ, and I want to say maybe it was about 10 years ago or so, where they started just, um, you know, they, they'd bring in the nurses. They'd give the flu shots. So it was complimentary. So I just had started having it, and I've gotten to the habit of it. And the truth of the matter is I, I haven't gotten the flu. But I understand that this – this is a, a bit of a controversial decision. For me, I didn't think twice. Yes, give me the flu shot. It's all set. Interesting story today in the Chicago Tribune. I want to share a portion of it with you, and then I want to talk about it with you. The headline says, a shot to save grandma. If vaccination rates rise just one percentage point, 807 won't die from the flu. Here's the deal. Last year, the strains of flu were particularly virulent. 900,000 Americans were hospitalized with the flu, and more than 80,000 people died either from the flu or from complications related to the flu. So, I mean, it might be somebody with a, a, for example, an older person, compromised immune system, they get the flu, makes them very sick, and then that leads to pneumonia or something like that. So it's not... It's not the flu itself, but it's a complication that came on, was brought about or made worse by the flu. Now, here's what I found to be interesting about this story. The flu vaccination rate in the United States hovers around, Gru, who's producing the show today, what would you guess? What percentage of people would you guess get the flu vaccine? Oh, interesting. I would have thought, Gru says 40. I would have thought it would be higher. It's actually, it's 45. So you were very close. 45%. The flu vaccination rate in the United States hovers around 45%. They say that if you could increase the rate to 70%, which is the level required to reach what they call community or herd immunity, 
and keep an epidemic from propagating that the majority of deaths, hospitalization, and missed days of work could be avoided. All right. So that that's kind of the deal. Only 45% of people end up getting the flu shot. Right now, if you're a relatively healthy person, that hopefully be me, a flu shot might reduce your personal risk of coming down with the flu by 40% to 60%. But getting a flu shot, this is the story, also does something else. It helps protect the people around you who are most vulnerable to serious flu illness, particularly the very old and the very young. A vaccine that is 60% effective on a 30-year-old, for instance, may be only 30% effective on someone over 65. So the idea is, all right, even if you are... Even if you are relatively healthy and you get the flu, so it's not going to kill you, but it's just going to make you sick. It's going to make you wish you were dead for a couple days. You know, you get the flu really bad. You're going to recover. But if if when you come down with the flu, you then transmit it to somebody who, again, might have a vulnerability, what you're doing is you are passing that on. And even though it might not kill you, it might kill the person that you bring it on to. So that's what they're saying, that this herd immunity, the idea if an increasing percentage of people ended up getting the flu shot, what it would do is make reduce the chances that they're going to get sick, but also reduce the chances that they're going to pass it on to someone who might end up get real, getting really sick. Um, what they estimated is, that, again, if you had just even a one percentage point increase in the vaccination rate, that would result in 15 million fewer lost hours from work nationwide. All right. And the numbers go on and on like that. But the idea is people should be getting the flu shot because not only will it help them, but it will help make everybody safer. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Like I say, I... When the doctor asked yesterday, I, I didn't ask questions. I, I just I've I have gotten flu shots for years and years and years. It's just something I do as a matter of course, and I typically get my you know annual checkup. It's normally like a, a in you know October or, or again early November or something like that. I just do it as a matter of routine. I've never looked back. I've never thought about it. But the, the numbers are pretty clear. If if more people did it. It appears that fewer and fewer people would get the flu. Now, by the way, I understand that there's some people who can't get the flu shots, which is part of, part of the argument as to why everybody else should get the flu shot, because you have somebody who's got that compromised immune system. They can't get the flu shot, so they are especially vulnerable to it. But but let's tee this up. Are you a flu shot person? Why or why not? Do you believe in this argument about even if, even if it's not going to kill you, maybe if everybody got the flu shot, it would make it less likely that it would kill somebody else, and therefore you are contributing to the public good. Flu shots, 414-799-1620. All right, where are you on this? Will you be getting the one this year? Why? Or perhaps even more importantly, why not? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with Dave in Fond du Lac. Dave, you're first. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Thanks Hi. for taking my call. Sure. I'm 63, over-the-road over truck driver. I've never had a flu shot in my life, and I don't get sick. I don't know. I often thought about this because my wife gets a flu shot. You know, my sons are running to Walgreens all the time getting flu shots. Right. But maybe I'm like a doctor where I'm just sort of in such a petri dish of everything, like, you <laughs> know, 
I'm in and out of truck stops and public places and restrooms and stuff. Maybe I've got an immunity built up. Well, let me but ask you I, this. Why why don't you, Dave? Is it just because, like you said, you, you don't get sick, so you don't think you need it? Or do you have some sort of hang-up about it? Or is it just, I, you know, I, I've never had one. I've never gotten sick. I don't need it. Well, that's about it, Jeff. Okay. The, the other thing is, I they, now that I'm older, they, my doctor kept telling me I should get a shingles shot. Right. I said, oh, no, I don't need any of that. Well, I got the shingles last last winter. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I might get one when I get older, older, but I okay. go through all the winter and everything would be one just fine. And, no, it, 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 it's, it's interesting you mentioned the shingle shot because I, I have not had that. My doctor said the same thing yesterday. He said, well, we... We, we we have it, and, and you should. We, he said you should get one. It's one of these vaccines. It's incredibly. It's very very effective. And you don't. If, you know you don't want any part of the shingles. Shingles. It's just. It's painful. It's this awful rash. You don't want any part of it. I said okay. I'm sold. Give it to me. So well, the problem is it's so popular that we don't have any. <laughs> what you're telling me? I should get it, and you don't have any. Said, no, we don't. We don't. We don't have any. But you 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 should get it. I said well, thank, thanks, Doc. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. I mean, I did find that this interesting. Like I say, I got the flu shot yesterday, but I, I did find it, it interesting because what they're saying is that even if you're young, you're relatively healthy, you should get the flu shot because you'll be essentially protecting people who aren't and who might be at risk. 414-799-1620. What do you think about that? We continue the conversation in just a moment. It's 145. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 148, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Really interesting. I mean, yesterday I went to the doctor. I, I got, I just got it. He said, you need to have a flu shot. Have you had one yet? I said, sure. They gave me the shot. I didn't think anything of it. Huge story in the Chicago Tribune today talking about, um, they estimate that about 80,000 people last year died from the flu or its complications. 900,000 people were hospitalized last year. And the vaccine rate, the people getting the flu, it's only flu shots. It's only about 45%. And they say if more people did it, you would develop more of what they call the herd immunity effect, and a a lot of people would be a lot healthier. Here's a text. My husband, kids, and I get our shots every year. There are so many bug sicknesses sicknesses that we can't get protection from. Why not take care of what we can do to try to stay stay healthy? The flu can be a scary thing. Why take a chance? That's from Jamie. Let's talk to Matt in Brookfield. Matt, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff, thanks for taking my call. Yes, How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Okay, are you a flu shot guy or no? Yes, absolutely. I'm a retired teacher. I've been getting it every year in the classroom. But you know what? I wasn't just getting it for myself. We are, that, that herd immunity thing you're talking about is no joke. I believe everybody that can get the flu shot has a social responsibility to do so because there are people in our society that cannot get right. this flu shot. And, you know, this isn't just flu vaccines. This is childhood vaccines in general. Right. We're seeing a resurgence in these things. Well, measles, you know, measles yeah. is making a huge comeback. Yeah, yeah. Be- we are we are slipping on our herd immunity. And what, what science has done for us, we're giving up based on, in my mind, bad information and ignorance. Have you, um, have you ever regretted getting the flu shot? Have you gotten it and then actually no. gotten the flu? Yeah. No, no. Um, matter of fact, my understanding is, is most every vaccine you get today, it is a dead version of the virus. You cannot get the flu from a flu vaccine. I'm not a doctor, but that's my understanding. Yeah, I mean, um, right. My, I mean, thanks to it. My, my understanding is that there, the, the thing that happens from time to time is there are 
are multiple strains of flu that might be out there. And you you might get a strain that wasn't covered by the flu shot that, that you got. But th- that's at least my understanding as well. Thanks for the call. 414-799-1620. I guess, I, again, I come back to this and I, the, the fact that the, the immunization rate is only 45%, I guess I found to be surprisingly low because I don't, I don't think twice about getting that flu shot. Lynn and Adele. Lynn, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi. Um, I've never had a flu shot, and I've never had the flu. But I, my siblings, because I'm 66, oh, you got to get a flu shot. Yeah. I said, well, you know, the year that you guys don't get sick with the flu, huh. and you've been having the flu shot, I will get a flu shot, okay? It's a deal. What? Because I, I transport people. Uh, I, I take people that are sick to the hospitals, to the doctors, to the maybe I just have a a, a great system that mm-hmm. keeps me healthy. I don't know, but so I, tell I, me I, what your hesi- what is your hesitation about getting the shot? Just that you you haven't had the flu, so you don't think you need it. Um, I don't think that I need it, and I also don't like putting things into my body. I'm not one of those vitamin takers, though. Okay. I, I'm just, why put something in my body that I haven't needed? I, okay. I, I don't see a point to it. If you had, uh, let me let me ask you the, the broader question. For example, if you were confronted w- with getting your, your children vaccinated for things like measles and mumps and things like that, would you do that? They do. Okay. I mean, they all did. All right. Okay. All right. No, but, I mean, no, I mean, the reason I asked that is that that's, that's putting stuff in as well. And I, I, I want to focus on the flu thing because once we go down the larger vaccination issue, that's a, that's a whole different story. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's talk to Helen in Waukesha. Helen, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Helen. Um, I definitely get my flu shot every year. I always have. And um, I, I agree with that gentleman. Um, there, people that get the flu after getting a flu shot probably came in contact with somebody with a different strain, because there's no. From what I'm been told by yeah. friends of mine that work in the health field, that there is no live viruses in the flu shot anymore. Right. right. Yeah. It's more likely that you. That they just they came right exactly like you say they they contracted something that that wasn't covered in the flu shot because they're not perfect I mean there, there's no question about it because uh, again there might be those strains that are out there uh, why why do you do it do you think it makes you just healthier do you think it makes it less likely uh, that you're going to get sick uh, well I used to work I used to be a teacher and um, when I was younger, I had a great immune system, but the older I got, the worse it got. And, you know, for people that say, well, I've never gotten sick, you know, there's going to be that one time where they are going to get so sick that they they won't say that again. (laughs) Well, right. Or, or, I mean, thanks. Or, or that you pass it on to somebody that gets really, really sick. I mean, that's, See, that's the thing. Whenever we talk about, and again, I'm the one that said I don't want to expand this too much into other vaccines and things. But as one of our callers was pointing out, measles were essentially eradicated. And now measles are making a comeback because you have you know, people that are making the decision. We, we don't want our kids to get the measles vaccinations. And the, the reality is for most healthy people, you know, healthy children, okay, it's a childhood disease. You get the measles. You are uncomfortable for a little bit of time. And then you get over it. Well, the problem becomes, though, 
there are people, kids with, you know, compromised immune systems or whatever, for whom measles could be a fatal disease. And so the thing becomes, all right, your kid, you know, gets the measles, your kid is at daycare or whatever, and exposes the measles before they've actually flared up, exposes some other kids who might have these compromised health systems, and, and then, then it's not the fact that your kid's gonna be killed, your kid's gonna, okay, go through the week-long thing or however long it takes to get over the measles, but if they've passed it on to someone else, they ended up getting sick. That's the thing that goes on with, again, the flu shots. And again, I'm not, I don't, I don't I don't play a doctor on the radio and if you decide that you don't want to go this route and you're afraid it's going to make you sick or you're concerned about that or whatever I I respect that that's a matter of your choice then you do it in consultation with your physician I I do think it's a discussion worth having though because you do have this issue of herd mentality that's out there and even if you are okay you get the flu and you're just sick for a couple of days if you come into contact with somebody who you know, can't get the shot and they've got that compromised immune system, particularly if you're around either small children or you're around, you know, older people, uh, it's it's definitely, I think, something to think about. Just saying. All right. But the decision's up to you for what it's worth. Leading by example, I got a flu shot yesterday and the, the only complication thus far is my left arm is a tad sore, but that's all right. It's 156. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 207, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So, Melissa, another one of these stories that just kind of makes you kind of shake your head at the human condition. Do you remember that story from last year involving the the woman who said that she had run out of gas? This was the New Jersey woman. It said she had run out of gas and she had come across this homeless guy, homeless drug addict, who spent his last $20 to fill up her empty gas tank after it brought after it broke down. Do you remember that story? I do remember that story. Okay, so it, you know, so, so that's the deal. Then then it goes public. So the husband and the wife. You know, okay, so we got this homeless drug addict who spent his last $20 to fill up the gas tank. So the 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 husband and the wife, they go public with this along with the quote-unquote homeless drug addict and they're all over. They're on Good Morning America. They're making all the rounds. And then they start this this charity campaign um, where, again, a GoFundMe page, mm-hmm. pay for all this money. Remember that story? I do remember it, yeah. Okay, and then, then of course, what happens is the story, not surprisingly, what ends up happening is at least first there, there's this tension between the homeless, the allegedly homeless drug addict and the couple about what's happening to the money. He goes public and says, I'm not getting my share of the money. I'm not getting it. They say, well, you know, we were giving him the money, but what happened is when we give him the money, he'd spend it on, he'd just give Drugs it, or alcohol. Right, or, exactly, or, or just kind of generally pee it away. So we're concerned that all this money is going to be gone, and we're trying to keep this all there. You remember that story? I do, yeah. Did you see the follow-up to this? I did, yeah. That's an unfortunate, that's such a bad scam. The, I'm surprised it hasn't been done before, though, honestly. Right. I mean, the follow-up for people who, is that the whole bunch of them have now been charged criminally out of New Jersey um, with 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 a, with a fraud. I mean, what they're saying is that this whole thing apparently was a scam from the beginning that they cooked up in order to touch people's heartstrings and pull a whole bunch of money in. It just the, the, ruins it for everybody. Well, well it does. It, it, it's and again, I it's one of these things that happens, and you, and you know the people that donated. 
that that four hundred thousand dollars. And my guess is a lot of the people that made donations are people that couldn't not necessarily afford to do that. I mean, you know, yeah. it's, you know twenty five bucks here, fifty bucks there, because they think it's such a heartwarming story. Well, and I also read, and I, I don't know if this is true at this point in time, but that the homeless man was missing. The other two, they know where they're at, but the homeless man, they don't know where he's at. They may have found him by now, but right. Well, yeah, they, they think he's on the run. Yeah, because <laughs> I mean, exactly. the word the word got out that yeah. this kind of scheme was was falling apart, but at least the the authorities have the position that this whole thing was apparently like a scam from the beginning designed to convince people to give the money, and it worked in a big way, but um, now you see the aftermath. And that, it's just, again, it, it's one of the reasons why, but for example, the city of Milwaukee has a, a policy where they try to discourage people from giving money to panhandlers, and their, their point is, you know, give make make donations to charity. I mean, give it to food banks and give it to homeless shelters and things like that. But you give this to these panhandlers, and you don't know where that money is going. Well, and I think a lot of times, if you do want to help out someone, they always say, "Don't give them cash. Give them a gift card to McDonald's or give them a gift card for food." So it, that they have to use that money for right. something that they need. So you know where it's going. But anyhow, an update to that story because I know we talked about that once or twice, and um, at least in the view of prosecutors. This thing was a scam from the get-go to try to tug at people's heartstrings. And, and again, what, I mean, the, the really unfortunate thing is that you, you, there, there are people out there who are legitimately in need and you hear the, these GoFundMe campaigns that are well intended. But the bottom line is you, you don't know how real any of this is. And this is one where apparently it was a scam from the jump. All right. The midterm elections were what nine days ago, and again, I, I just it seems like it seems like it was just forever ago. Was it the blue wave that some people predicted? No, I mean the Republicans kept control of the U.S. Senate. They'll end up with my guess is fifty three seats. They actually expanded their margin. It could be fifty two, but I think they're going to hold on in Florida. Although Florida is just a, a, a complete. I, I do not understand how in twenty eighteen. You, at 2018, what decades and decades after we have put a, a man on the moon, almost 50 years after we put a man on the moon, we can't figure out how to timely cast count ballots, timely and accurately count ballots in, in an election. But at the end of the day, my guess is that unless something really strange happens, and it's Florida, so I guess anything can and does sometimes happen, my guess is the Republican wins that Senate seat, the Republicans pick up the seat at the end of the month in the runoff in Mississippi, and they end up with 53. They, they lost the House of Representatives, they lost 40 seats, and that's not, that is not a good thing. Looking at the analysis, I, I think here's kind of what I, I, I saw happen. I mean, clearly, there's no way to look at this other than saying it's a repudiation of President Trump. President Trump, yes, he has his base, but he turned off a lot of, I think, otherwise maybe Republican-leaning suburbanites, particularly women, who, who came out and voted for, many cases, moderate Democrats. That in, in the, the GOP's got to figure out a way to, to, to get them back. That's going to be the challenge over the next couple of years. And it's especially going to be the challenge if President Trump is at the top of the ticket. Hear, hear me out now. I'm trying to think back on some of the presidents who Republican presidents who were elected in my lifetime and were successfully reelected. And the two that come to mind right now are are Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. Richard Nixon was elected in 1968 and the country was in turmoil. You had Lyndon Johnson who resigned, recognizing who didn't resign, but he announced he wasn't going to run again. 
in, in the face of Vietnam. You had a huge divide in this country between hawks and doves, and you had the Democratic Party split because you had a lot of people who thought we should get out of Vietnam. You had a number of the blue-collar Democrats who wanted to stay in Vietnam. It was just a mess. So Richard Nixon gets elected in 1968 in the wake of a lot of turmoil. What did Nixon do after 68? And people forget about this. But it's, And putting aside all the dirty tricks and the Watergate and that type of stuff, Nixon won in 68 by, by running as this kind of law and order candidate. And what he did over the next couple years was he consciously did things to try to expand his base. That was one of the things, like reaching out. He wanted to bring his base beyond the law and order base that got him elected, and he was successful. Ronald Reagan, elected in 1980. Jimmy Carter, for all the good traits Jimmy Carter might have, he was a lousy president. He, he just was. You had really high inflation. You had, what was the term that was used then? You had malaise. Ronald Reagan ran and was elected, kind of as the, the alternative, the conservative alternative to, to Jimmy Carter. After he won in 1980, though, Reagan spent several years broadening his base, trying to say, okay, I'm not going to be happy with just the people who got me elected. I know I've got to reach out to more people. And what it resulted in was Reagan winning, I think, every state but two, I believe, maybe every state but one, when he ran for re-election in 1984. One of the things that's happened over the first two years of the Trump campaign, the Trump presidency, is, and love him or hate him, I, I think it's fair to say, that President Trump has not expanded his base. He, he plays to his base. The things that he talks about when he goes out on the campaign trail, the issues that he, he focuses on. I mean, instead of touting this great economy, we were talking, he was talking about immigration and this and that and, and the other thing. He hasn't, I think, over the last couple of years, really reached out. Maybe people say, well, the media won't let him do it, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is he, he's playing to his base. And unlike a Nixon, unlike a a Reagan that recognized that for re-election, we want to have a broader tent. We want to reach out. We want to bring more people in. President Trump, if anything, has been narrowing himself. And that narrowing, I think, candidly, you know, cost Republican seats um, in the election eight or nine days ago. So th- this is where we are now. You've got you know, two years before the next presidential election. Candidly, do I think it is possible for President Trump to change his stripes at this point in time and decide that he's going to you know, suddenly expand his base and start to appeal to all these groups that he, he just hasn't concentrated on in the last couple of years? I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think he can do it. I don't think the media is going to let him do it. So here is my question to you. Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, independent, I don't care. Should President Trump run for re-election in two years? Or simply say, hey, I've accomplished all this stuff. Look at all the great things I've done. I'm going to declare victory and go home. Do you want to see him run again? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'm just going to tell you from from my vantage point as a political pundit, I, I look at this stuff and I say, you know, given what he's doing for the first two years, yes, he's solidifying his base. Yes, he's appealing to his base. But that base isn't going to win Wisconsin again. That base isn't going to be enough to win Pennsylvania. That base isn't going to be enough to win Michigan. And 
unless he's able to dramatically change things around, I don't see how he wins again. I, I just, I don't, unless he can broaden the base. And if he can't do it, well, is it time for maybe somebody to say, hey, I've accomplished all these things. Let me quit while I'm ahead. Do you want to see him run again? 414-799-1620. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 218, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 220, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, do you want to see President Trump run again? And if you think it's too soon, I'm telling you, it's not. The campaign for president in 2020 has started. number of people are aggressively running. Should President Trump do it? My analysis is, unless he can figure out a way to do something he hasn't done in his last two years, first two years, and that is broaden his base, I just, it seems to me there's no way he wins. I don't understand. I don't see how he can win Wisconsin again. I don't see how he can win Pennsylvania again. Don't see how he can win Michigan again, given what happened in the midterms. Of course, I freely admit up front, I didn't see him getting elected the first time, but th- this isn't the first time. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Tim in Fredonia. Hi, Tim. Good afternoon. Hey, hey you know, Jeff, we got, we got an electorate in this country. It's just insane. I mean, we kicked a perfectly good governor out of Wisconsin because we're doing too good. Right. You know, we're doing too well, so let's get rid of him, you know. But, and I'll tell you, Paul Spooner, Jeff, everything that he campaigned on, he's accomplished or at least has tried to accomplish. He's had a bunch of obstructionists in the Democrats. They don't want to do anything about immigration. Now, Jeff, is he the most polished speaker in the world? No. Is he the most moral guy in the world? No. But then, Jeff, he's done everything he said he was going to do and, and at least tried to accomplish that. You know, and okay, but let me ask you this, Tim. It, it, yeah. I mean, he, he, I mean, look, and I, I see the rallies that he has and, mm-hmm. and, you know, people filling the, you know, the aircraft hangars and things like that. But, but those are the people that those are the hardcore supporters. If you look at the results of the midterms, you know, you had a lot of people who had voted Republican in the past who, for a variety of reasons, decided not to do it this time. And I think President Trump was one of those fashions. Right. Does, does he have to reach out? Does he have to start talking to people beyond the ones who spend, you know, two hours waiting in line to get into the airport hangar in Montana? And, and see, here, here's, the, here's the thing, Kevin. Here's my, my thing. Here's my thing on this whole situation is I like, and for lack of a better term, he, he's a hoodist, okay? And he, People always like that he spoke his mind. People say, I will just be brutally honest with you. He's right. a brutally honest guy when he talks to you. If you're a turd, he's going to tell you you're a turd. Everybody, right? that appeals to me. It's the same thing in society today, Jeff. If you're, let's equate this to coaching in high school, you can't even be yelling at kids anymore when you're coaching. Anything. Well, right, and I guess the Tim, I mean, look, I, I, see, I understand all that, and I understand how he has, how the president has an incredibly loyal, devoted base I, I get it that that base is is maybe 40 percent of, of the voters all right but but that's not enough to win and one of the things and again I, I go back to how I started this I mean I, I remember I'm old enough to remember Ronald Reagan and, and Reagan Reagan won in 1980 because he wasn't Jimmy Carter and Jimmy Carter had a failed presidency but but Reagan won the entire country in 1984 because over a period of the first four years, he he expanded the Reagan coalition, and and that led to this huge electoral victory. I I don't see President Trump expanding the coalition. I see him, again, playing to his deepest and most hardcore supporters, and and that's great, but, but other people who might have voted for him 
you know, that they switched in the midterms to send a message and voted for Democrats. How do you get, if he runs again, how do you get that back? 414-799-1620. Howie in Whitewater. Howie, you're on WTMJ. Hi, good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? I think he should run again. Um, the sad thing is I think the Democrats are going to do whatever they have to do to try to stop him from getting in, which mm-hmm. is going to be very sad for this country. Because uh, I think he's done an awful lot for this country, being that he's a businessman, and, and I think our country needs to be run like a business. Well, I, I'll tell you something I do think, Howie, that if the, the Democrats who now control the House of Representatives spend the next two years running just, just anti-Trump, and, and, and they, I think if they try to go down the impeachment route, that would be a huge mistake, just like in 2011 and 2012, I think some people made a huge mistake trying to recall Scott Walker that, that propelled him to power. So I, I, I guess that could turn it around. Now, thanks for call, but I get, I, I just, I, I understand that there's a lot of hardcore folks who just, who just love the president, but one of the things that I try to, I try to do is be relatively objective about this, and, and you look at what happened in the midterms, and you look at the way in, in swing districts, Republicans just got crushed. And I'm not talking about the, the areas where President Trump did really well, but those areas that, that you know, Republicans are going to have to win to take back control of, of Congress and the, the states that propelled President Trump to a, a victory, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, those went overwhelmingly those went overwhelmingly blue in one respect or another. Michigan and um, Michigan and Pennsylvania, much more so than Wisconsin. But the Republicans' path to victory, you know, in the electoral college, it's kind of a narrow one. I mean, you know, you and you have to win those things. And I guess my concern is if President Trump can't figure out a way to broaden his appeal, well, you know, you 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 got to look at what happened in the midterms, and you got to say hey, he's going to be a one-term president, which then raises the question of. All right, would it be better to figure out what's life going to be like, you know, after Trump? Would President Trump be better off? Now, I don't, I don't think his ego is going to let him do it. I, I just don't. I mean, so I'm not delusional. I suspect he's probably going to, in all likelihood, run again. I know he's got a hundred million dollars already that's in the bank, and that's, that's a powerful sort of thing. I'm not sure that you're going to see anybody who's going to come forward and, and be able to significantly challenge him for the nomination. But I will tell you, and I say this, I say this wholeheartedly, love President Trump or hate President Trump, if, if he's not able to figure out a way to expand the base that got him elected in 2016, in my opinion, he's not going to win in 2020. And given all that's gone down so far, given his temperament, given the way the first two years developed, I'm not sure how he, I'm not sure he can expand his base anymore just saying it's 227 this and by the way i mean the other thing i would point out is i I firmly believe that many 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 of the people who voted for president trump now president trump in 2016 it wasn't it wasn't necessarily a pro-trump vote it was an anti-hillary vote and the the pro-trump factors coupled with the people who just couldn't stomach the idea that Hillary Clinton would be president that was enough to carry that was enough to carry him over i don't i don't know that you're going to have that same dynamic again that that's out there this year if the democrats nominate someone who is not as polarizing as Hillary Clinton was 228 jeff wagner wtmj 
235. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Drew, who's producing the show today. You uh, grew up in Stevens Point, that area. Were, were you a deer hunter? You, you weren't. Your, your, your dad, your parents, not? Your grandfather and your mother's side. But you did, you did not grow up in, like, the, the hunting tradition and stuff like that. All right. I bring this up because the gun deer season starts on Saturday morning. Uh, last year, and here, here's the interesting numbers. Last year, there were 588,000 gun deer licenses that were sold. Okay. And that, that's, that's a whole bunch, but that was, that was down. About 10,000 from the previous year. That would be 2016. And last year, the, the number of gun licenses sold was the lowest in 41 years. Let me, let's put that out there. It was the lowest in 41 years. And I don't know where this year is going to ultimately rank, but my guess is it's going to be part of a continuing downward trend. In addition, the Wisconsin gun deer harvest last year dropped to a near 35-year low. Uh, hunters registered a little 195,738 deer for the 2017 Wisconsin gun deer season. That was about that was down about one percent from 2016, and was the second lowest total in 35 years. So, as far as the number of deer taken. It's the second lowest total in 35 years. As far as the number of hunters who, who signed up for, for licenses for the nine-day gun deer season starts on Saturday, um, the number was the lowest in 41 years. And my guess is, again, that that's going to continue. Now, there's a story in the paper today talking about how fewer deer hunters means that there, there's less money that's going to be there for conservation work and things like that. And, and don't get me wrong. I, I understand that there, I mean, 588,000, or if it turns out to be 600 or 580 or whatever the number ends up being at the end of the day for, for the season, that's still a lot. And I understand we still have this whole hunting culture and we still have lots and lots of people who go into the woods. But, but something is going on. The fact that fewer and fewer people are deciding to go into the woods. And right now, it's not, a dramatic decline, it, it's 1%, 1.7%, etc. But if the trend continues, you start to have a completely different dynamic. So let me open up the phone lines, and we do this because I know a number of people are perhaps leaving tonight. A lot of people are leaving tomorrow because they want to be in their deer stands or out on wherever they're hunting, you know, when the sun comes up on Saturday morning. So let's just tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What, what is going on? Why are there fewer people hunting now than there were before? I mean, and it, it, look, and it could be, hey, there's nothing going on. This is just kind of this sort of momentary blip. But the truth is there has been steadily, steady, steadily declining numbers, you know, with a couple aberrations over the last several years. So why are fewer people participating is it just well you know everybody used to bowl five years ago now lots fewer people do that what's going on 414-799-1620 that's the accurate mortgage talk and text line we discuss in just a moment if you're on the line please hold on i've got some theories myself but again i'm not a deer hunter 
But I've got some theories, but be curious as to know what yours are. 239, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Back with your calls in just a moment. 243, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, um, starting in a day or two, we're going to have 580-plus thousand people who purchase licenses to go out and, and hunt. It, it, it's, it's a great part of the Wisconsin culture. But one of the un- inescapable facts is the number of people who are hunting has been on a steady, not dramatic, but a steady decline. In addition, the number of deer taken have been on a decline. Last year was the lowest in 30-plus years. So we're talking about what's going on. We have jam phone lines. We're going to get to as many calls as we can. I want to throw out j- just one thing. I I talk to a, I have a number of friends and acquaintances who are hunters, and they grew up. Granddad was a hunter. Dad was a hunter. They're a hunter. They're trying to pass that on to their kids. And one of the things I hear a lot is the places where they traditionally hunted, they just aren't deer. And I'll I'll talk to folks who will say, you know, it's it's been five years since I even saw a deer. Don't ask me the last time I, I took a deer. And I understand, look, that there's all sorts of values and fun and experiences that you have if you're going deer hunting that you get if you don't shoot a deer. But after a while, if you're there year after year after year and you don't see deer, it, you're not going hunting. <laughs> so that that's and I think that is. That's at least one factor that I hear. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Jake in Fond du Lac. Jake, good afternoon. Hi there. Hi, Jake. Um, what do you think? Well, my opinion is, I guess, is the kids aren't really involved like they used to be. I'm a, a, an active member in my local conservation club, and we do a lot of youth organizations and, and youth trap shoots and, and fishing trips. And every year there's fewer and fewer kids that are involved with those things. Mm-hmm. We're down to single-digit numbers on some of these things and and fighting to try to get kids to peel themselves away from the TV or get out of bed before 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> right. it, it's really a shame, but it, I, I think that's what it's coming down to, is just less and less youth involvement in, in the outdoor sport. Right, and, and, do you, and do you attribute that just to, well, well I mean, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I know a lot of people who are involved in service clubs, the Kiwanis clubs, the Elks clubs, things like that. And, you know, they say the same thing, that it's it, it's been harder and harder to get younger people to, you know, see that value. And, and so maybe it's just like this overall thing in your mind. It's just that there's so many demands and other things that people can do that they're, they're just not getting, they're not as interested. Yeah, I think that's what it is. It was it was an exciting time growing up, and I, I'm still an avid bull hunter and, and outdoorsman. But it was looking forward to this day. You didn't sit two or three days before right. opening day of gun season, right? And it was what we did as kids, and it just doesn't seem like there's that excitement anymore. Right. For Interesting. Now, thanks to call four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. And again, I mean, last year they sold five hundred eighty eight thousand gun deer licenses. That that's a huge number. So, I mean, deer hunting isn't going anywhere anytime soon, but the, the numbers are on a decline. Let's talk to Brad in Waukesha. Brad, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Brad. Yeah, what, uh, what you were saying is exactly uh, what I was going to say is there's this, at least in the northern part of the state, there's just no deer. And specifically where I hunt, there is a huge wolf population. Right. And the the deer up there with the harsh winters, the wolves, the coyotes, they, they just don't stand a chance. Right. So the so the bottom So the bottom line is that... You, you you like to go hunting, but you know after season after season, if you're if you're driving all the way up there and you're not even seeing a deer to shoot at or something, yeah, yeah it's it's like why why bother? In other words, that's huh? Correct, yeah, because it's like you're like we're in a five year dry spell, and it's like man, you just 
just don't want to go no more. And then I have a 11 year old son, but you know, I'd like, like to take him. But if we go up there, you know, you want to, you want to see deer. Right. No, 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 no. I mean, I think I, I get it. I mean, if, I mean, part of, I mean, part of the, the, the thrill of the hunt, and I understand it's a great family activity and you get the multi generations, but if you've got, you got a, if, if you're trying to get your kid, you know, invested in hunting and you've taken them the last three or four years and you haven't even seen a deer, much less taken a deer. It's kind of like, okay, dad, explain to me why we're, we're driving three and a half hours and we're in this, we're in this cabin and stuff and, and we're going to be traipsing around the North Woods and we're not going to see anything. I, I think that that is a factor. Okay. Here's a text. Jeff, I'm not saying this is the only cause, but I know about 20 people who, who don't go up north hunting anymore because they say the wolves are so bad and there aren't any deer around like there used to be. I think that's perhaps a factor. Tim on the south side. Tim, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I understand that the, the gun season is declining. But if you would factor in the amount of bull hunters, that's got to be on the increase. And the amount of deer taken, I'm sure, in the past 35 years, has got to be at its highest point in the bow season, mm-hmm. especially now when you can use a crossbow to bow hunt. Right. So a lot of guys might go out when it's nicer out, get a deer bow hunting, but then not bother to go gun, gun hunting. Right. So you think that's kind of a factor, just a, a shift. Now, the, the truth is, I'm looking at this, these numbers. If you include all the hunting licenses, um, that number is not the 588. That's like the 824,000. That's down, but it's not down dramatically. So I think you make a point. Some people are shifting over, but it's still down overall. Do you think, do you think a lot of people are shifting over? No, no. I still agree with the other callers that the, the younger kids, you know, they have so many other things to do now with, with sports and they don't, they don't want to take the time on the weekend to go do that because right. they got basketball or they got a volleyball club or they got, it's right. kind of baseball even though it's November. Yeah, That's yeah. Tough. No, I, I mean, I, I understand. Thanks for call my my um my my granddaughter Gracie. Uh, you know, she's she's involved in in volleyball. She's a very good volleyball player. She's a freshman in high school, and the and the the girls' volleyball season just just ended. So now they go into this club volleyball, and there's tryouts, and there's hundred. And then it's, I'm just taking that as like a little narrow example. And there's tryouts, and there's hundreds and hundreds of of. You know, girls that will, and, and the same thing is true for guys for all the different sort of things. And then you get involved in the club sports activity and it's, it's like a full time sort of job with between like all the practices that are there and then going to the different tournaments and going to the meets. There, there's all these different demands on people's time. And I got to think that that is a factor as well. 414-799-1620. JC and Hartland. Good afternoon. Hey, how's it going? Real well, know, I, I think there's a, a few a few reasons. There's probably, I mean, you know, so many reasons we can point to. A few is I remember growing up as a kid, you know, and I and when I grew up, I grew in the south side of Milwaukee. I grew up. There were so many hunting opportunities close to Milwaukee, mm-hmm. half hour, forty five minute drive, public hunting land that you could access. Or when you went and knocked on a farmer's door, he would let you hunt his land. I mean, trust me, I beat it on doors before <laughs> just to goose hunt and do things. They, it's not like that anymore. I don't know if it's a liability issue or what it is, but. Farmers don't really want you hunting their land anymore in the general area, you know, the Waukesha counties and the surrounding areas, the urban areas. So it, to act, you know, for the, for the fair weather guys, you know, maybe where the big populations are in Milwaukee, you know, they might not want to drive two hours. And if they don't have pub or private land to hunt, they might not even know where to go if they have to drive two hours to hunt. So like the inconvenience of trying to right. find more places to hunt, 
plays a huge factor. And then I don't know what you're reading off of, but I would be curious too to see if they break it down to out of state licenses. Cause I know that, you know, trends happen like, you know, bigger bucks in Iowa, Kansas, surrounding states. And we pull a lot of people from Illinois. So I wonder if we're selling less out of state license. Yeah. And honestly, I don't, I can't, I don't know, but I've got two or three things in front of me and none of them talk about the out of state licenses. But, but I will tell you, I mean, again, and, and mine, mine is just like anecdotal talking to people. And I get the sense that. Well, it's still a big deal, and I'm not trying to suggest it's anything other than that. There's a little, perhaps, less enthusiasm than there was 15 yeah, or 20 cool years ago. It, it's not as cool as it was. You know what I mean? It's like to the kids. You know, when I was a kid, it's like, you know, you would talk about it in class, seventh, eighth grade, how, you know, you're going up north hunting with your pops. And right. It was cool to do, which the good thing is I'm into fishing, and fishing's pretty cool to do, but there's a lot of tournament opportunities. Right. It's at the college level, the high school level now, where obviously – you can't have deer hunting tournaments, you know. I mean, fishing's so <laughs> different. But if you make it cool, kids will do it. You well, know? well, yeah, exactly. And see, th- this is such a part of. I mean, it's it's not just the the tradition, but it's also such a part of Wisconsin's economy. I mean, there. Well, I'm not telling anybody anything they don't know, but there there's all sorts of places throughout Wisconsin that just. I mean, there we, we talk about you know retailers making their year a lot of times in in November and December because, you know, they kind of operated a loss most of the year, and then it's all the Christmas shopping. Well, there's a lot of places, whether it's the hotels or motels or bars or restaurants or whatever, that kind of like limp by for a good portion of the year, and maybe there's, okay, it, it's the deer hunting week, and now, you know, we're going to be packed, and the bars are going to be packed, the restaurants are going to be packed, and the cabins are going to be packed. And, and that's the type of thing that you have to really – if there continues to be a drop-off, what is the effect of that going to be? Brian in Oak Creek. Hi, Brian. You're on WTMJ. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Brian. What do you think? Well, to be honest with you, uh, I think uh, four or five years ago, they, they sold out numerous permits, still permits, uh, like candy. They gave them away. You could buy $10 a shot. You could get as many as you wanted. And I, I was sitting in the route and talking to folks. They were shooting 10, 12 deer at a crack. Because you could, right? Uh, I think it completely devastated the population of North, all the public hunting land for sure. Uh, I used to see ten, twelve, fourteen deer running packs. I see one now, maybe if I'm lucky, right? And for everybody to spend uh, seventeen hundred dollars to go up there, uh, you know, over the weekend to, to hunt, it's just not worth it anymore. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think Brian, a lot of people, thank, thanks for, I, I think a lot of people make that calculation. I mean, it's, I, I get it. You're, you're with your family, you're with your friends. It's a tradition. But like you're saying, if it's going to cost you seven hundred or eight hundred dollars, and you go year after year after year, and you're not you're not seeing deer, it, it might change the dynamic a little bit. Okay, here's a text, Jeff. I have been hunting ever since I was able to. I just had a daughter in June, and this year will be my first year for not going up. My uncles still go up, even though they haven't gotten a deer in three to four years. I do, however, agree that um, there are many taken in bow hunting season, and that the coyotes and wolves are getting worse and worse. All right, this is again, it's an issue for conservationists. It's an issue for the DNR, but but it is a huge issue because deer hunting is such a part of the fabric of this state, and it's so important when it comes to tourism that you want to make sure. You want to make sure that we continue to thrive, and I know everybody that's going up there hopefully is going to have fun, and hopefully everybody's going to get their deer, but at the same time, this is part of an ongoing problem, and I don't think you can sweep it under the rug. 255, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. When we come back, we're going to find out what John McCure has on his mind. Please stick around.